This is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County, welcoming you to the January 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show, the second Monday of each month on WPKN 89.5 FM, bringing you news and information about the arts and culture across coastal Fairfield County. This month, how 2020 changed the face of arts and culture funding. This show is the third in an unintentional series of now three programs in which we are looking at how the arts and culture in Connecticut is funded and what new efforts and new investments might be possible. In our November program, the Arts as Policy, itself following up on a pre-election candidates forum we held with six legislative candidates speaking about their support for the arts and culture, Kathy Mayer, director of Bridgeport's Barnum Museum, and Lou Assone, director of Stanford's Curtain Call Theatre, deepened the questioning of four re-elected legislators, Senators Huang and Haskell, and Representatives Dathan and Rutigliano, about their support for legislative investment in arts and culture. All four of them reaffirmed their personal commitment to do what they could, not just to support the arts and culture in general, but to think about new ways to assist artists and cultural groups across the state, large and small, in recovering from what has been a really devastating period for everyone. Then last month, December, we celebrated the decision by Connecticut's Department of Economic and Community Development to allocate remaining Federal CARES Act funds to the Connecticut Office of the Arts. The Office of the Arts was able to award $9 million to performing arts and arts education organizations. And in parallel, the Connecticut Humanities awarded some $2 million to museums, libraries, and uh, other cultural organizations in recovery funds. We also heard from some of the awardees who spoke about their knife edge survival over the last perilous year and Senator Huang was on hand again to express his support and point out that federal grant aid is only part of the investment picture and that foundations and individuals were an important and critical part of the picture as well. One of the most striking parts of that conversation was how Frank Mitchell, chair of Connecticut Humanities Application Review Committee, described how, because of new relief funds from the CARES Act via the NEH, and the resultant surge of new applications they received over the summer, enabling them to award more over those few summer months than they do in a normal year, funding committees had new kinds of what he called complicated conversations about what the humanities were, who fits into their award qualifications and, and so on. Also with unexpected funding from CHIFA, the Connecticut Higher Education Supplemental Loan Authority, negotiated by Liz Shapiro of the Office of the Arts and Jason Mancini, head of Connecticut Humanities, Frank spoke about the experience of working directly with the Office of the Arts in making grants that led to thinking about, well, what was the intersection with the arts and how granting mechanisms were different in these two spheres and may be able to come closer together. This led further to rethinking about the kinds of organizations Connecticut Humanities 
might expand its funding programs to include, especially non-traditional and smaller groups, rather than the larger, well-organized, usual suspects. So this seems to have been both an unnerving and stressful, but also fairly exciting time for at least some funders in thinking through what they were doing and how they might do things differently. So this has led our program today in which I've invited uh, Frank Mitchell and Liz Shapiro back to further the direction of that conversation and to bring in some other funders who are trying to do things differently, either as a result of those intertwined health, racial and economic crises of the past year, or whose normal operations have been very much affected by it. Uh, we have invited Frank Mitchell, uh, who's on the board of Connecticut Humanities and is chair of its application review committee, but um, he is currently not with us, but I hope he will be joining, joining us shortly. Uh, we also have Liz Shapiro with us, the head of Connecticut Office of the Arts and director of arts preservation and museums within the Department of Economic and Community Develop Development. Welcome back, Liz. Thank you, David. Also joining us today are Jacqueline Coleman, who is Senior Community Impact Officer for the Hartford Foundation. Welcome, Jackie. Thank you so much for having me here. Michael Van Liesten with Social Venture Partners Connecticut. Welcome, Michael. Thank you. And Abe Hilding Solorio, who is the Community Outreach Manager for Sustainable Connecticut. Welcome. Hi. Everyone. Hi, David. Thank you. Great to be with you. So um, I did want to start out with Frank, and maybe he will join us again to reiterate um, something about that, um, frankly, period of excitement in which, um, due to the uh, new kinds of monies and the new kinds of applications he was, he was receiving, led him to so begin to rethink and to start conversations about rethinking uh, who and how they should be funding. But let's turn to um, Liz Shapiro. Liz, you were part of that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and as director of the Office of the Arts, you had to pivot pretty quickly this last spring in realizing that your usual funding buckets would need to be redirected to relief efforts to keep artists and organizations going. And though uh, I think I'm correct in saying that the Office of the Arts is principally funded by money from the NEA that then has to be matched by money from the state, you were pretty creative in reaching out to other potential fund funding sources, um, having conversations with both traditional partners like the New England Foundation for the Arts but also finding new ones like uh, Chifa that we, that we mentioned. You described some of this in our previous talk, but I'm perhaps most interested in what at this point you feel that you've learned as a result of <laughs> all of this pivoting, creating new funding relationships and moving from funding, you know, exciting and interesting projects to this critical emergency funding just to keep people um, going. Um, how would you say you've evolved as a funder over this last year and as a leader of the arts in the state? Well, I think, you know, there's 
two levels here, David. One is sort of on a practical level where our office was really forced to work smarter. All of a sudden we weren't together, so we couldn't have those kinds of workplace partner, you know, conversations that would move right. things forward so quickly. Um, so that was one way. Um, we had to pivot to move electronically. We had a new online grants platform, which uh, we had was in the works when COVID hit, but we, we I guess, had to learn to use it under less than ideal um, circumstances. And so immediately we found that, um, you know, responsibility, staff responsibility boundaries were, were blurred because um, one person couldn't do everything to administer their program. So that was just not going to work. So that was sort of what we learned on a practical level as an office. But on a strategic level, you know, I think the thing looking back that has been most important is, and, and we were talking before we started recording and Michael said this and I completely agree is that we started having conversations, really active long-term conversations that were very, very deep about with our peers nationwide, statewide, not just state arts agencies, which is what Connecticut Office of the Arts is, but with private foundations, with other um, arts service organizations about how we can move forward, how others are moving forward. What are the parallel um, circumstances that surround everybody's experiences um, in municipalities and at state levels, but across the United States? Wow. And those so conversations were really important. Who was convening? Those were they um, um, were they um, uh, accidental? Were they? Um, um, I mean, did, was was <laughs> it working with the colleagues that you knew, or were there other central conveners? Yeah. Well, so so they were, you know, whatever. Um, crisis makes um, weird bedfellows, or whatever that that um, that that saying is, um, but. Whoever you knew, whoever I knew, all the people I knew were so interested in bringing me into conversations with others that they were having. And I was able to reciprocate and bring other people into conversations with people that I was already having conversations with. So um, the National Association of State Arts Agencies was one. Um, the colleagues at the Tremaine Foundation were leading national conversations, which have been so pivotally important. Um, you know, Americans for the Arts have been leading conversations. And from those conversations, little special interest groups have sort of, um, you know, developed and, and that's just allowing for amazing communication and, and really the building of deep relationships never would have been possible in a three day or four day conference, never. So it, I, it's really an exciting I, time. So you were networking like crazy um, and networking in a way that, um, is obviously very beneficial, but but was really precipitated by this terrible crisis that was going on. Mm, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And I think, you know, just for the Office of the Arts in terms of, you know, evolving as a funder, you know, we have been dedicated to our READY principles since 2016 in our strategic plan. And our, Re our READY and acronym stands for relevance, equity, access, diversity, and inclusion. And those are the principles that underlie all the decisions that we make in our office. But um, confronted with the pandemic and with the murder of George Floyd and with this, this sort of unveiling of situations that have been happening forever. This is nothing yeah. is new. We're just bringing <laughs> light to systems that have um, been the underlying um, 
you know, systems that we operate on. And so we've been able to really look at the assumptions that we've been making as funders, um, you know, really based on the privilege that we have. Um, we're having really deep discussions um, about how how the funds we do grant are supporting the Connecticut arts ecosystems in, in a totality. And that has been really helpful. Um, you know, for me personally, on a, on a logistical level, I am taking a much more active role in the grant making process. We've ha I've had to, there's just too many um, for our tiny little staff of four people and a grants manager. Um, as I mentioned, um, one of the ways I've gotten to know people in the state of Connecticut is through the terrific work of the designated regional service organizations like the Cultural Alliance, who have invited me and staff to in to crash their regional conversations. So I get to hear firsthand about the needs that are out there and develop my own relationships with your constituents. Um, totally supported by Commissioner Lehman at the DECD to do the work that we need to do. And when you feel trusted and supportive, you are empowered. Um, and right. uh, those of you who know me know that I'm not really shy about speaking my truths um, and feeling supported by my um, bosses to do that is an amazing gift that I have been given this year. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, we've talked about these national cohorts, which have really provided safe spaces to talk together about the reality of arts and racism, the arts and COVID and the nature of healing and the role that the arts can play in healing. Um, but also I, you know, I specifically have taken um, part in many discussions and workshops and, and trainings on really confronting and understanding structural racism um, within our society in general, but within the arts community. And so because of the virtual opportunities and the high quality of the virtual opportunities, just the learning has been deep. Mm. So you are quite a different person now than you were a year ago. Absolutely. Um, so um, Frank has joined us now. So welcome, welcome Frank and from Connecticut Humanities. Um, and really I, I wanted you to um, actually give you a little more time to talk about um, this incredible experience that you had, um, this opportunity to rethink um, maybe some of the mechanisms, the structure, some of the assumptions that Connecticut Humanities had um, in terms of um, its funding. Um, would you like to, to talk a little bit about, again, about that experience that you had um, this year? Sure. I'd be delighted. Uh, thanks again for having me. And sorry, we had a committee meeting that ran longer and I looked up and realized uh, we were way over time. Uh, but it's a pleasure to be here. And I certainly should acknowledge that everything that I think or say is based upon the benefit of all the good work that the staff at CT Humanities has done. So Scott and Jason and Amy and those guys. And the, the places where we have to grow as an organization they'll be pulling us along uh, as board members and committee members because they're already there and we just have to find our way to kind of trust them and continue in the work they've done and laid out for us. Uh, it, we were sort of fortunate when COVID rolled around because we had begun some work around the edges in rethinking uh, uh, systemic complications in the granting structures. Uh, and they certainly were uh, subconscious in a lot of ways, but they did privilege organizations in ways that you know we need to continue to work at 
uh, improving. Yeah. And I think, uh, for example, in our uh, granting guidelines, we allow very little for general operating support and very little for staff. So if you're a small organization that has to build a budget where every grant has to cover some part of general operating and staff, these aren't good grants for you. Whereas if you're an organization that can build your budget based on your endowment and you have sort of compound interest over generations, these are great grants for you. So inadvertently, we were privileging uh, bigger institutions, older institutions, institutions that had a history in this state over smaller, younger, newer institutions, none of which would have these kinds of endowments and all of whom had to build their budgets based upon grants. Uh, we also uh, had a process that allowed large organizations, and we've got some great humanities arts organizations that do incredible work here. Uh, they've got good staffs, they can write amazing grants, and you know, it was quite possible for them to present uh, compelling, good projects every year. Uh, and we would end up often in meetings with you know five or six big, well-funded organizations that could just apply for project money, and they could get money to plan a project and to execute a project. And they would all score high because of the ways that we set up questions. And so they scored high, they'd be at the top of the chart. And at the end of the meeting, we would end up with most of the budget for that meeting going towards these five or six organizations that could come in every year for one or two grants. And then 10 organizations that were smaller uh, that hadn't scored as highly. And we have to split what was left amongst those organizations. And it, it wasn't malicious. We didn't do it on purpose based upon our rubric. They were high scorers and they were great organizations that do good work and we were always ready to be affiliated with those projects. But it meant that regularly we were struggling to find money for good, small, uh, compelling organizations and projects that just didn't have the capacity that the big players did. And so in the years before COVID, we're wrestling with equity around those issues. How do we make sure we're supporting lots of organizations, encouraging smaller organizations, reserving some funds for them. What are we doing in our process that privileges the bigger organizations? How do we create some balance there? And those were really hard conversations. And when we moved into uh, January, February, March, we began debating about uh, race and identity as another complication in our issues around equity. So not just big, small, regional, other demographics, but you know, who are we serving and which populations and where do we need to do more of that? And I think the benefit was that we had already had really hard conversations about what's a humanities organization? What about the bigger players and the smaller players? And so none of it was easy, but we already had some practice in debating and uh, trying to make sense of these issues. And we knew where everybody's uh, hot points were and we knew where they were likely to allow us some grace and some leeway. And so it was a nice way to go into this much more intense period when we were meeting almost monthly, it felt like, to debate these issues and really pushing on, okay, this is great, but what are we doing about smaller organizations? What are we doing about uh, the cities? What are we doing about organizations that serve communities of color? Uh, what about LGBTQ? 
And those discussions continue to come up. And even if we couldn't answer it immediately, at least hanging those sorts of issues uh, on the table to come back to them so that we knew right. we'd be much more deliberate about equity in, in how this work was so being done. Have you, have you landed, uh, Frank, or is this a continuing uh, process? I mean, did you, I think, have you, have you, do you now have new structures and new approaches or is it still an evolving process? It's constantly evolving. We have updated structures. So we have a process that means that large organizations or you can only apply for certain project money uh, every other year. Uh, we've tried hard to create some guardrails that just mean that there's a bit more equity. And we're always conscious of that in the meeting. So that as we're discussing these things, we're trying to figure out you know, what does the scale look like? Are we covering these bases? Uh, and this is all work that we did before we have begun the process, at least at the board level, and I guess institutionally, of thinking about equity uh, and doing sort of that kind of uh, needed equity training. And we'll be beginning that process in the next few weeks. And so we've sort of got a head start, at least in ARC, because we've been having these discussions for uh, at least two years as we tried to figure out how do we make this feel equitable amongst the organizations? And then how do we lay in other kinds of uh, critical questions uh, into that framework. Right. Uh, it's been slow and steady and it'll continue. So a lot of this is was was internal. Um, it was an internal process that was, it sounds like accelerated um, by, by the crisis, but you did mention the value of uh, discussions with other funders. Liz has just been talking about uh, this um, incredibly dynamic, dynamic process of um, uh, talking with uh, funders around the around the country at many different levels, and last time you talked a, a lot about the uh, excitement of working with the Office of the Arts and uh, mm -hmm. how the kind of collision of systems made you also conscious of um, possible changes. Can you talk a little bit about those partnerships um, that had an impact on your thinking as well? Certainly. Uh, we have a much tighter relationship now with the Office of the Arts. Uh, I feel like I've always had that, uh, but the connections now between uh, CT Humanities and the Office of the Arts are much clearer, uh, and working on the CHIFA grant package uh, helped us have some really intense conversations about the work that we're doing, and we were certainly motivated by all the progress that they've made in sort of creating the ready profile and thinking through what that means for their applicants. And as we had discussions to plan for the chief uh, portal, it really, there were moments where we were highlighting things we had to do as CT Humanities, uh, that we don't have some statements in place that we need to have in place, right. but there's work to be done. And even as we've been doing that work internally uh, through ARC and sort of setting the table for it, it needs to be formalized. Uh, by the board and by the institution. And it was nice to have that nudge, that little push from uh, the Office of the Arts where that work has been going on uh, for quite a while to remind us that you know if we, if we expect organizations to do that out in the field, we have to lead and we have to model it. And Great. so Very we are. Exciting. Yes, thank you. Uh, if you're just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County with our January edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic is how 2020 
change the face of arts and culture funding. With me are Frank Mitchell from the Connecticut Humanities, Lucia Pirro, head of the Connecticut Office of the Arts, Jacqueline Coleman of the Hartford Foundation, Michael Van Leesten with Social Venture Partners Connecticut, and Abe Hilding Solorio with Sustainable Connecticut. Well, I'd like to turn now to another fairly traditional funding organization that supports local arts and culture amongst many other community funding and has also recently reassessed how it goes about funding. Jackie Coleman is Senior Community Impact Officer for the Hartford Foundation. Welcome, Jackie. And first, can you tell us a little bit about the Hartford Foundation, where its money comes from, who it funds and how? Sure, be glad to. Thank you again for having me. So the Hartford Foundation for Public Giving is a community foundation. It's actually one of the 10 largest community foundations in the country. Um, we have other community foundations in the state of Connecticut. There's several of them representing, I think, pretty much all of the communities in Connecticut. We actually serve the greater Hartford region and 29 towns surrounding that region. You can find out which towns we serve on our website. Um, and when you ask about where our money comes from, we are about almost 100 years old. Um, and we have just about a billion dollar endowment, which means invested money. Um, we don't spend a billion dollars every year. And that came to, I know, sometimes people are like, oh, that's a lot of money. Uh, it is a lot of money. But it started with these two bankers about 100 years ago um, when community foundations were first coming on the scene. And the idea was to invest some money so that the principal, the interest that was being gained on the money could be spent out in the community, but the investment would stay there in perpetuity. So that is how we have been able to build up over time. And we've had immense generous donors from our community that understand the value of the nonprofit sector and believed in the values of the Hartford Foundation for investing their funds. So when you say, where does the money come from? It's, it's really from our donors. Um, and then ultimately from our investors who have um, invested these funds over the years. So we have about a billion dollars at this point um, invested and we, we draw down our interest annually, which right now is about $34 million a year, which sounds like a lot of money and it is, but when you think about needing to serve all of the nonprofits in our sector, it, it can become challenging. Um, so who it funds is basically 501c3s and nonprofits in our sector. Um, it could be arts and culture is absolutely part of our of our portfolio. But, you know, uh, uh, food insecurity, homelessness, um, reentry. These are major areas of interest, employment. Um, I actually also work on the K-12 um, education sphere. So we we have our hands in a lot of different sectors and we 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 are able to put the money out there in sometimes somewhat of a responsive way, um, especially now with our COVID fund, when, when nonprofits come in and say, we need funding now to help us get through. Uh, we also have strategic investments where we might do requests for proposals, or we might have partnerships with particular organizations that we work with to achieve certain outcomes. And then we also have donor advised funds, which uh, donors in some cases want to have more say in how their dollars are spent and not have them be unrestricted going out into the community. So that's sort of the the how it gets out there is hmm. that is that enough yeah. of a an overview great and tell us a little bit about some recent changes you were i think uh, responsible for and, and involved with some recent changes in thinking about who and how you should fund 
Well, I would say um, that uh, the entire foundation has been, the entire staff and board has been responsible for some of our changes. I think I have had the pleasure of being able to implement and, and explore some of those changes. Um, I would say probably about a year and a half, two years ago, um, under our, our relatively new president now, Jay Williams, we embarked on a new strategic plan. And our priority at that time, we said very publicly, very clearly, we want to reduce disparities around race, place, and income in our community. And that was our stance. And, and, you know, we started to look at what does that mean? What do we need to do? Um, and then, you know, at the beginning part of 2020, we were ready to launch, we were ready to restructure internally to really move this strategic work forward. And then of course, COVID hit. And uh, we, we had to pivot as Liz talked about all the different types of things that had to happen in that pivoting process. Um, and, and thinking about our current grantees and the COVID situation and all of that. And then, not as the dust settled because I don't think the dust is settled, but as we've, <laughs> as we've been able to like breathe and kind of take a look out there, and this is not surprising, but when we look at where the disparities are because of COVID and because of the political unrest and the social unrest and all of the other challenges and issues uh, that are happening in our community right now, we realize that these disparities are only bigger in exactly the same places we were looking at in our strategic right. plan. So we were already headed this way. And then, um, over the summer, our, our president and our board said, we've got to really double down. And so our language went from dismantling, I mean, I'm sorry, our language went from uh, reducing disparities to dismantling systemic racism in our community. Oh, yeah. So uh, so that really kind of empowered staff to start to, um, to think differently and to take some more risks, um, we're involved a lot more in participatory grant making. I don't know if that was the direction, if you wanted me to share some of the participatory work that we're doing. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, so yeah. one example of that, specifically in arts and culture, because that's one of the areas that I work in, um, is that we formed an artist of color. It's actually called the Artists of Color Unite. They named themselves. Uh, it's 14 amazing artists of color. They're serving as an advisory committee to the Hartford Foundation. Uh, we actually were planning to form this committee prior to COVID, and then COVID hit, and we weren't sure whether to continue with it, but decided you know, based on what we were discovering that we should continue with it. And then we actually had 39 fantastic, amazing applicants. Any of those 39 could have been on this. We couldn't have a committee of 39, unfortunately. Uh, but we ended up with a committee of 14 and we uh, allocated $400,000 for this committee. And we said, we, we want to the best way we can to put $400,000 into the hands of artists of color and lift them up in our community. And they have spent the last seven months uh, talking about this and, and, and debating and, and thinking about what's most important. Is it COVID relief now for artists of color? Is it, you know, arts projects? Is it building capacity? And it sort of ended up all three of those. And, um, and I'm happy to say that they, they recommended grants and that have gone out the door by the end of 2020 that would not have, that was totally out of their recommendations and, and their decision process. And will this be a structure that will continue, Jackie? It, it's not simply a response to this last year, but it, it's a new structure that you will keep in place. Yes, we actually, it, it, it came out of the arts landscape study, which is actually probably about two years old now, where we discovered there was a dearth of artists of color and arts leaders of color, which, which 
brought us to convene artists of color. And it was in those sessions that they said to us, you know, if you really mean this, empower us and give us some resources. And so that's when the idea to form an advisory committee came. And then it just got elevated and, you know, highlighted because of COVID. No, the intent was um, the group that is committed now is in for two years. And they're talking about um, succession planning. Our, our intent is to keep this committee around. You know, yeah. And they are actually also all um, given a stipend to per- for their time to participate. Well, thank you. That's that's really a, a great eye opener and a fantastic uh, model, I think, um, for others. I, I was about to say, uh, and now for something completely different, to introduce Michael Van Liesten from Social Venture Partners. But I think we'll discover there's some, some real uh, connections um, b- between your program and uh, what Michael is doing. So, um, Michael, Social Venture Partners is uh, an international network of individuals, donors who do more than give, but are also actively engaged in community work. Um, you're one of those partners, Michael, based in New Haven. Um, and you've recently established a racial equity fund that has developed um an interesting uh, decision-making model. Um, But first, could you say uh, a little bit about SVP, um, what it is, how it operates, and a little bit about your own journey that led you to become uh, a partner? Sure, thank you for having me. Um, Social Venture Partners was founded about seven years ago by a group of 12 individuals who funded uh, several nonprofits Uh, It's grown immensely since then, and both the scope of what it does and um, the number of partners. So now we have more than 200 philanthropists and volunteers working with, I believe, 11 or 12 nonprofits and public institutions to promote systems change in Connecticut. Um, Our focus uh, over the past number of years has been closing the opportunity gap. And in fact, the Race Equity Fund, which I'll describe in a moment, is an outgrowth of that effort and based on recommendations made by our Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee uh, a couple of years ago, actually. Um, we're focused organizationally, particularly on two sectors where we perceive we can have the most impact, and that's in the early childhood sector in terms of um, getting kids high quality childcare and getting them kindergarten ready across the state, and also um, career readiness and workforce development. And some people might have seen um, the Governor's Workforce Council's work over the past year and 14, I believe 14 SVB partners have been involved in that very broad effort to change uh, and improve the um, systems in Connecticut to maximize the ability of of anybody, uh, but Connecticut citizens in general, to optimize their sort of human potential and their economic potential. Right. Um, My personal journey there was uh, about almost two years ago, the parent of a a woman, a young woman who I had taught as a middle schooler uh, was a SVP partner. I was looking for an opportunity beyond the, uh, the average next board membership. I wanted to get in, uh, wanted to get more involved more deeply in helping a nonprofit become better in whatever way they saw fit. And so I joined, I made a donation and joined and I uh, became a co-team leader uh, serving an organization called Emerge Connecticut, which does workforce training for the re-entry population in New Haven. 
And um, that went very, very well. Um, we helped with their executive director transition um, with their financial structures and um, we're building a database and front end for them for data tracking and, um, and operational performance tracking. Um, that was extremely rewarding. And ultimately they, uh, I was asked, uh, we got into conversations and uh, I was offered the position uh, that I now have with them as director. Um, and so uh, with respect to their race equity fund, it sounds very much um, like what um, uh, Jackie has described um, with a couple of, uh, with a couple of differences in focus. So um, participatory grant making the, 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 thrust of that idea was that the people who live in the communities and work in the communities and have uh, an organic expertise as well as a technical expertise in the sectors um, in, the, in, the, in these communities are the best decision makers. Okay, uh, I, I can't put it more bluntly or more straightforwardly <laughs> right. than that. Yeah. Um, uh, and the, the fund itself is focused on organizations who are pursuing systems change. There are a lot of direct, there's a lot of direct um, aid or direct um, service uh, provided uh, across the state and across the country. But the fact of the matter is, is we need to get at root causes. And again, the people who are providing the direct aid often clearly understand what the root causes are, but don't necessarily have the resources to address changing those root causes. All right. Um, and so the fund itself is uh, going to be giving grants of uh, $25,000 each uh, to um, organizations that are run by people of color um, that are nonprofits doing work serving underserved populations in Bridgeport and New Haven. Um, the reason why we focused on that particular general criteria is because people of color led organizations, as already has been described, uh, have had. Um, a lot of challenges getting unrestricted funding. You can't grow without unrestricted funding. It's very, very challenging. Um, we already talked about the democratic sort of decision-making uh, by people who have greater insight into the communities. And um, we really, really wanted to develop relationships with organizations that are um, getting at the root causes of, of these issues. Um, in addition to funding, we also intend to provide our advisory services to any organization, not only that, um, certainly that uh, receives a grant, but there will be, I suspect, organizations that don't receive a grant that will also be re receiving our advisory services. And in some cases, I've had extensive conversations with dozens of uh, organizations, and some of them uh, see more significantly more value in the advisory services than in the grant amount, actually. Interesting. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so that's where all that stands. Um, and just although the, this is um, these are early days, you haven't you you currently um, have the grant that's that's now open. Uh, no awards have actually been made. Yes. Um, and certainly, it's not specifically about arts and culture, but uh, certainly it's open to arts and culture projects. Yes. Yes. Definitely. Um, in that in that respect, what we do is we've used FSGs. Um, uh, modeling of systems change. And there are a number of dimensions of systems change, but the one that the arts 
really fills is what would be called the mental models dimension. And if, if you're if you're an artist, your work and your and your work and activities are focused on changing habits, thoughts, assumptions, deeply held beliefs, and ways of doing things that result in the establishment or the perpetuation of inequities. Then you're you're working on systems change. So I'll give you uh, one example. Is simply, you know, if your uh, if your mindset as an individual is that you can't do something. A lot of times art allows you to imagine what you could do, <laughs> right? I think that's pretty obvious to most people. Why do we read books? Why are we inspired by art of any kind, right? That's a real human need. And that's why there needs to be representation in the arts um, by all people, by diverse diverse group of people. And, why, and what that does to a person, to whether it's a child or adult, in terms of how they see themselves. Because all the programs in the world and all, all the all the social programs in the world don't work if the person receiving the social program the benefit of the social program doesn't actually believe in themselves. So that's a that's one example in my mind in my mind the most powerful example of how art can affect um, affect people systemically in terms of their mindsets. Thank you, Michael. That's so, so interesting, and we'll certainly track the development of of this uh, program. Thank you. You're welcome. If Thank you're you. just joining us, this is David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County with our January edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, a monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic is how 2020 changed the face of arts and culture funding. With me today are Frank Mitchell, Connecticut Humanities, Liz Shapiro, Connecticut Office of the Arts, Jackie Coleman, the Hartford Foundation, Michael Van Leesten, Social Venture Partners, Connecticut, and Abe Hilding Saloria with Sustainable Connecticut. So next I want to talk, turn to um, Abe, um, who is working with Sustainable Connecticut. It's uh, Sustainable Connecticut is another very young organization, fascinating grassroots story um, this got started, as I understand, as an idea in 2016 with the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities and its task force on sustainability. Uh, Sustainable Connecticut is both a certification program by which individual towns can set up, can take up a set of sustainability best practices and can earn bronze or silver certification for their efforts at being a sustainable municipality. But parallel to that certification program is a novel funding program. It's open to just about everyone who has a sustainability idea that, and it provides automatic one-on-one -on -one matching funds to projects that align with sustainable Connecticut's goals. So Abe, thank you for joining us today. Um, did I get that right? Anything you'd like to correct or add to my outline of uh, Sustainable Connecticut? Hi, David. Uh, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I think you've just about nailed the, the introduction and the overview of our work. And I appreciate you taking that on for me because every time I do it, I feel like there are things or aspects of what we do that I'm leaving out. So I appreciate having somebody else take on the majority of that. Um, one thing that I'll add, because I think it is really important to highlight, is that the way we look at sustainability is very encompassing. 
So often when people hear that term, right, sustainability, they think about environmental issues, uh, renewable energy, greenhouse gases, things like that. And well, yes, those are significant and core aspects of our program. We also focus on lots of other things that fall outside of that traditional perception of sustainability, but that are highly related to it. So our roadmap of actions for the cities and towns, which you mentioned, it includes things that pertain to local economies and supporting local businesses. Uh, there's arts and culture. Obviously, we'll talk more about that. Uh, transportation issues, affordable housing and homelessness, community engagement, food systems, health, wellness, and all sorts of other things. So it really is a, a broad look at many of those interconnected issues that, yes, make our communities more sustainable, but also more equitable, more vibrant, and just better places to live. Um, Tell us a little bit about your, your role with Connect with Sustainable Connected. How did you get involved in it and uh, how do you fit into what goes on there? Uh, so I was, I mean, this could be a pretty short answer in that I was looking for a job a few years ago and Sustainable <laughs> CT was there and, <laughs> and, and it worked out. Uh, but I've always been interested in environmental issues and I grew up in a house where those were always constant topics of conversation. So back from 2017 to 2019, I was getting uh, my master's in UConn's Department of Public Policy and I wanted to go into something that was mission related, but working with government, nonprofits, uh, and, and that would have an impact on environmental issues. Uh, and so Sustainable CT, yeah. what was that? Sorry. This sounds perfect. <laughs> it, it, it was a really good fit. So in, in my role at Sustainable CT, um, I'm the community outreach manager, but predominantly what I do is to run our funding program, the Community Match Fund, uh, that funds public, community-led, wide-ranging sustainability projects. So most of what I'm doing is uh, just getting out in communities, meeting people, connecting with them, finding out about others who are doing work on the issues that we work on as well, and finding ways in which we can partner to focus on really hyper-local projects in their communities. Right. And that's, that's, in fact, how we met because of one of our projects that we thought fit, fit right in. So I'm curious um, both about how arts and culture fits into this mandate um, and what cultural projects you've seen come through your program. Um, and then maybe let's talk later a little bit about how what happened in 2020 may have affected the projects that come in and the way you may have thought about um, grant funding. But first, let's talk a little bit about the broadly arts and culture projects that have come across your transom? Uh, sure. So we launched the Community Match Fund uh, a little less than a year and a half ago. So it's a very new program, right? Sustainable CT is very new. We're, the Match Fund is even a little bit newer. Uh, and in that time, we've seen a whole host of different arts and culture related projects. Uh, so some of the things that we've seen, which I think sort of dovetails with uh, the discussion about COVID and responding to the pandemic, uh, lots of arts programs that were planned for uh, one in Bridgeport, actually, the Bridgeport Arts Trail, that was obviously an in-person event for uh, gallery shows, artist workshops, youth programs. Uh, we supported a project with them to shift that to online. So it was virtual gallery workshop, virtual gallery shows, yeah. excuse me, workshops, uh, shifting those art programs to online. So letting projects move forward that otherwise uh, would have been sidelined for the year. But then we've seen things, uh, sidewalk art of murals and different pop-up installations, youth art programs to create uh, art at community gardens to make folks feel welcome, to know the gardens are there. Uh, there was a project in New Haven on environmental storm drain art. So a real clear interconnection of art with environmental issues. Uh, we've seen art gardens, labyrinths, larger scale murals, dance programs, light installations to create um, walkways that are more inviting and safer for people. So it really has been a, a wide range of different arts projects that have come through the door. That's terrific. And it, it's, um, it's obvious that you're a very responsive 
organization. I mean, I think the, the whole process is very fast, correct? Um, I know that traditionally, very often you have an idea, but you have to wait a year or two before any money might come through. Um, with Sustainable Connecticut, it seems that it's uh, a very fast process. Yeah, so I, I think the quickest one that we've had is where I was talking to someone about their work on a Monday, and then by either the Wednesday or Thursday of that week, their project was live and actively crowdfunding. So, I mean, and the crowdfunding is an aspect that obviously we should touch on. But yes, the turnaround time, the whole design of the program is that it meets the need and sort of the excitement for projects when that's there, rather than saying, okay, we have uh, grant application periods twice a year, and then we'll disappear for four months while you wait to hear back from us, and then we'll get back to you and let you know what you got. Instead, yeah. for the match fund, the whole idea is that it's immediate. When people want to work on something, we're able to turn those around right away. That's clearly very, very attractive. Um, so I thought I'd turn and just ask everybody about their experience with partnerships um, over the last year or two. We've heard Liz and Frank um, speak about this to a certain extent. Um, but just curious, uh, anything that comes to mind about what you can say about your experience of discovering um, new partners, partnering with other funders? Um, uh, what, what have you learned from engaging with a whole variety of partners? There may be other funders, they may be um, community organizations or applicants. I, I guess I'm interested in that interchange that um, helps you see what you do from, from a different perspective. I think um, clearly, Jackie, your, um, your committee is an example of uh, reaching out and creating um, a, a, a structure mm -hmm. that, can't, that, you, that you've created, but you've brought people in uh, from the community to um, talk about that. And um, do you call it a panel or a committee or? We, we call it an advisory committee. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and the intent is that it'll be there <clears throat> specifically around arts, arts and culture for a while. We have done some other across the foundation, some other participatory partnering, um, our community funds, which were set up, I think, starting in 2019, where each of our 29 towns received a grant of $100,000 um, in an endowment, and uh, they received the support from the foundation, our community funds team, to establish a local um, advisory committee that was going to determine how the each year the interest on that fund would get spent in their town. So, so we have that in place. Um, we have, of course, our, our Black Giving Circle, our Latino Endowment Fund, and our Catalyst Group for if those donors that maybe are not really at the level of, you know, putting a ton of money into the foundation, but are interested in philanthropy and contributing to the community. It's a, and it's a very community driven way and participatory way to get involved. And I would say the biggest thing that um, I'm, I'm most excited about the, the artists of color work, but one of the biggest things that the foundation has done is in the last quarter of this year, um, Jay Williams, our president announced um, allocating uh, two $1 million um, grants. One is going to the Prosperity Fund 
which is a Black-led philanthropic organization. So the idea is that we are saying, here, we're going to give you a million dollars and we're going to trust how you decide to give that out. And then another million is going to the Hispanic Federation of Connecticut, which is a Latinx-led organization for the same the same type of processing. So we're we're slowly, you know, trying to find other avenues and other ways of, of really involving community to Michael's point. I think it was Michael who was talking so passionately about the people on the ground knowing what's best for themselves. Um, I also work on summer grants. Actually, just a little plug, if you have a summer program that that serves Hartford youth or even um, people with disabilities in our 29 towns, we have an RFP that just came out on Wednesday for for summer programming. Um, And we are actually looking at, for the first time, involving parents on our review panels because we feel like we could learn a lot from them yes. finding out like, you know, which programs do you think should get funded here? That's great. So, I, like, I love that. So that's the kind of thing that's what's going on at the foundation. And I guess, Abe, you, you probably discovered a number of, um, re- uh, started a number of relationships with um, organizations or, or groups around the state in your travels. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately our program, the match fund is something that we're, we steward, but it's not our program. It's the people leading projects uh, that the whole design of it is that right? anyone can lead a project, whether it's a nonprofit, a municipality, or if it's three people who are walking down the street and say, Hey, I want to do this thing. Why don't we have trees here? Why isn't there a pocket park? Why don't we have a mural? Anyone can come to us and say, Hey, here's this project that I want to do. And they can receive the funds directly to themselves. So uh, just uh, last month, we were holding a conversation series of all of the different folks who had led match fund projects. And there have been about 100 of them in the past year. So sort of bringing those people together and finding ways in which, and they're all over the state, but that they can sort of start creating these connections and building this work out uh, regionally, statewide, whatever it is. And we have more of those planned moving forward, because really what we want to see is that the folks who are active and in community and know what their community needs and are leading these projects, they should be the ones who are getting out there and who know and can connect with other people who are doing this work too. Um, So it's been interesting to see that sort of take off. And uh, the outreach that I have to do has become a lot less because people hear about it, they lead a project, and then they talk to other people. And there's constantly new folks coming forward. Well, this is very exciting. What strikes me um, about many of these projects is is a new kind of dynamism, um, a new kind of energy that um, many funders now have found. Um, We... Um, looking ahead to, to this next year, it's a year, of course, of continued uncertainty, but it seems as if um, all of you are somewhat better prepared for new uncertainties in terms of having built um, new structures, having built new relationships. Um, do you feel a little more secure in terms of moving moving forward? Any, are we just about 30 seconds left, I'm afraid, but I just jump in and say, you know, if we all waited until we felt really secure about moving towards the future, we probably would not get very much done. So I think that really what we are all doing is a tremendous act of faith and bravery and listening and um, standing up for what our values are and and actually um, 
um, articulating those values. So, so that would be my response to this. I, I never feel secure about the future, but I do know that there's work to be done. And I, I, and I feel confident that the best way to do it is to move forward together. And I've seen cooperation across the state of Connecticut, like I've never seen before. So come on in and join us. That's what I keep saying. All the folks who are here on this call today, you know, we, we've all been working together, Michael, I can't wait to be working with you. Just wait. Um, you know, and um, there's just so much to do. We have to go fearlessly into the future. Thank you very much, Liz. Those are very good words to end with. Thank you all. And I wish you all good fortune and uh, sustainability in this, in this new year. Thank you. This Thank is you. David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. You have been listening to our January 2021 edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture, our monthly interview show on WPKN 89.5 FM. Today, our topic has been how 2020 changed the face of arts and culture funding. And our guests today were Frank Mitchell, board member of Connecticut Humanities and chair of its application review committee, Elizabeth Shapiro, head of the Connecticut Office of the Arts and Director of Arts Preservation and Museums within the Department of Economic and Community Development. Jacqueline Coleman, Senior Community Impact Officer for the Hartford Foundation. Michael Van Leesten with Social Venture Partners Connecticut and Abe Hilding Solorio, Community Outreach Manager for Sustainable Connecticut. If you missed part of the broadcast or just want to hear it again, you can hear the show on WPKN Podcasts on SoundCloud. I'm David Green with the Cultural Alliance of Fairfield County. Please tune in next month for the next edition of Spotlight on Arts and Culture.